so much for that wonderful time of worship. And uh, thank you, Pastor Jim, and um, all the church volunteers for just the tremendous hospitality and generosity that you provided for our parents summit this weekend. Um, I'm just really just so grateful and thankful. You guys were just such an amazing host. And we, you know, there's a few of us here um, still from the parent summit that were able to stay um, an extra day. But we are just so grateful to be here. And I'm thankful that um, I'm able to speak um, at this church. Um, as Pastor Jim said, um, you know, I pastored a Southern Baptist church out in Southern California. And I honestly never thought I'd be invited to um, speak at the Baptist church again, but here I am. <laughs> uh, but as I was thinking about what to share this morning that would um, be beneficial for our parents summit uh, as, uh, along with uh, the congregation, I thought a little bit about sharing um, just kind of a similar journey that our church took us, uh, um, uh, that our church took um, like you guys. Um, we started our church back in 1997 um, in a Los Angeles suburb um, in the city of La Mirada, which was very close to a Christian conservative university. And as a result, there were a lot of um, um, students coming from that uh, Christian college to our church. And many of these students uh, were um, confessing to me that they were struggling with their sexuality, as they called it. And they would come to me and ask me to pray with them. They would um, confide with me and just, just ask that God would change their, their desires. And so as a church, we wanted to be faithful to the scriptures as we thought. And we like prayed for them. We tried to pray the gay away. We had a, even a fund established to try to um, help them, you know, receive conversion therapy. But as the years went on, um, it was pretty clear that no one was changing, and in fact, people were getting worse. Um, people were experiencing self-hatred, self-loathing, and every time I met with these kids, it felt like a death sentence. And I remember just pastorally feeling like, you know what, what is it about this counseling situation where I felt like there was always bad fruit? I felt like the Spirit of God was never in these engagements, and there was just this always constant struggle and just self-hatred that was continually growing. But I remember um, encountering a, a gay man who was in a committed relationship. Um, one day, I, I happened to come across him. He was the neighbor of a church congregant. And as we were talking in this front lawn, you know, we just hit it off. We um, got along really well, and it made me comfortable enough to ask him this question. I asked him, Reuben, as a gay man, and you know me as a Southern Baptist pastor, what would someone in your community want to share with someone like me? And I remember that conversation, his um, countenance all of a sudden changed, you know, from one of like, um, you know, a happy conversation to one where all of a sudden he wasn't sure you know, how to communicate with me. But after trying to, you know, give him the context of my situation, he said, finally, okay, Danny, if you really want to know, you know, during the 80s and 90s, when so many of my friends were contracting HIV and dying from AIDS complications, all we heard from your community and pastors like you was judgment. You told us that this HIV problem was a judgment from God, and you not only judged us and mocked us, 
but you left us to suffer alone. And so you want to know what someone would, like me would want to tell Southern Baptist pastors like you, and he just went off. And I remember just standing there in front of his lawn, just being stunned, not, not expecting this answer from him. And, and I remember just saying to him, you know what, Reuben, you were so right, because I remember the 80s and 90s. I remember those harsh words of judgment, and I remember not doing anything about it. And because of that, Reuben, I want to say to you on behalf of myself and pastors like me that I am so sorry for the harm that we caused on you. And I remember here was two people, right, as opposite as can be, standing in this front lawn, and, and he looked over at me and he said, I never thought I'd ever hear an apology from someone like you. You know, the situation just was so, like, holy. It felt like King David being confronted by the prophet Nathaniel regarding his sin. But instead of, of, of this Jewish prophet, it was a gay man who was confronting me. And I asked Reuben, can you help me to process this? And so he invited me to West Hollywood where he worked at an HIV clinic he began to tour me around the neighborhood and, and just got, I got to know some of his friends. And I began in 2008 doing a deep dive into theology, into the history, into developing relationships with people in the gay community outside of my church. And slowly but surely, all the negative stereotypes began to change in my mind. And I began to look at Scripture with new eyes and began to see that maybe Scripture isn't saying what I always thought Scripture said. And one day back in 2013, this, this light turned on in my head. And I remember saying, I think you can love God and be gay. And that thought startled me because it... it, it It stunned me because I thought, God, did I just become liberal? <laughs> and as a Southern Baptist pastor, that was the last thing I wanted to be. But that same week, you know, we, my 15-year-old son was with me in the car, and there was this gay-affirming song on the radio that played. And I was like, you know, stunned. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I think I like this song. And I looked over at my son and I asked him, son, what, who sings the song? And he, he told me and he goes, why? And I told him, I, I think I like the song. And he goes, dad, do you know what the song is about? And I said, yeah, I, I, I know. That's why I like it. I, I've changed my mind on, on what God says about this. And we got out of the car. I looked over at my son. He looked so shocked and surprised. And I said, Drew, what do you think of the song? And then his 15-year-old self, he looked at me and he said, dad, I'm gay. <laughs> I was stunned. Here was this guy, this my own son, who he like said he was dating this girl, and I found out he was just pretending he was dating her so that he could kind of cover up his his own sexuality. And and you know, he you know, he and we just cried on the parking lot and I hugged him and I told him I loved him. And and he eventually came out to the rest of the family, and as we were sitting in the car, I remember. He was telling the family, you know, I'm so glad that all of you now know my secret and that you guys have all, like, loved me anyway. 
But he said, if there was a pill that someone can give me right now that I could take, that would take away this attraction, I want you to know that I would still take it. And as a father, I remember just thinking, why does, is that not sitting well with me? And I remember going up to him the next day and looking at him, and I said, Drew, remember that conversation in the car? I want you to know that as your father, if there was a pill I could give you that would just take away this attraction you have, I wouldn't give it to you. Because, Drew, this is who God made you to be. I love you just the way you are. You are beautiful. You are perfect. Don't fight this. And for the first time in my life, I remember thinking, this is the first time I've ever spoken to a gay person and felt like I was offering words of life. And as we began to think about what this means for our church, I remember just like telling the elders, hey, this is, this is where I'm at. You know, I've been on this journey. I've been sharing the stories. I've been telling the church that we have to love LGBTQ people better. But once I told the elders that I had changed my theology, immediately they, they moved to terminate my position as pastor. And they said, you have this Sunday to tell the church what you now believe so that we can fire you. That Sunday, I gave a message on why I changed my mind on homosexuality. And instead of the church firing me, we had an emergency meeting that night. And the church said, why are you moving so fast to the elders? We are going to give this a six-month period of process. And in that process, I was told that for the next six months, I was not allowed to teach. My son, for whatever reason, was told that he couldn't participate in the children's ministry anymore just because he was gay. It was unexpected, but I found out this was the first of many things that he would have to experience as a young gay man. My son, through this experience, was, was spoken of badly by the elders in front of the church. They spoke of his, said his name in the front of the church and spoke of him as an abomination. People in the church started saying, we, we can't trust him. We can't trust Pastor Danny anymore. He is the teacher of the doctrine of demons. And that stuff just continued to go on. And I remember that week, one of my good friends in the church, a small family who had small children, came up to me in tears and they said, Danny, we love you, but we cannot stay anymore. I remember just like wondering what is going on, that here we are, such good friends, and I wrote them a letter. And I said, when you say you love me, but choose to distance yourself from me, what does love mean? How do you love someone from a distance? Is that love? Because love is incarnational, love is relational, so I don't understand what you mean when you say you love me, but walk away. And as I began to look at my church become more and more divided, it was parents against children, families against families, husbands against wives. There was threat of divorce. Friends who have been long times friends now hating each other. And I wept and I remember thinking, God, should I just resign? And as I was alone in the coffee shop, I remember God thinking, what is going on here? I don't understand. I feel like I'm like 
so disoriented. I don't know what has become of my church and my community. God, will you help me to understand? I remember God leading me to the scriptures and opening up the pages of God, of, of the word of God to the gospel of Matthew. And in Jesus' words, he, he spoke and he said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when men shall reproach you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. For my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is reward in, your reward in heaven. And I remember just weeping over these words and just feeling like, God, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but... God, however long this pain takes, I receive it. I receive it because I trust that you are going to do something beautiful. And I look at the words of Jesus, how disorienting it is, how subversive it is, how counterintuitive it is to, to pray and love your enemies to bless those who were persecuting you. And I, I just didn't imagine what, what this could mean. But again, I thought about Jesus on the cross and how Jesus was surrounded by an avalanche of powers and principalities, the worst injustice that political people and human government could put on a righteous man they did to Jesus. The worst injustice that religious leaders could do by snuffing out a righteous man they did to Jesus. The worst injustice the crowds could do by mocking and spitting at Jesus. All these things, human government, the political sphere, the religious community, the crowds, all gathered together and conspired to overwhelm Jesus by the greatest violence that could be inflicted on any person, and Jesus absorbed it. Jesus absorbed it on the cross. He was shaken. He, he, was, he, was, he was squeezed. He was beaten. He was suffocated. And what came out of Jesus' mouth? was divine forgiveness and love. Jesus looked out at all the crowds and he didn't label them as politicians or religious people. He didn't label them as the left or the right. He merely said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they do. And I thought about that because I, I had to think hard about that because as, as time went on and it was, it was bad enough maybe to, to experience this personally, but when your 15 year old son is having to go through all of this, it's harder on a father as a, as a parent because scripture was being weaponized against my gay son. His own homeschool group was creating new rules and saying, Drew, you can no longer go to the bathroom with another guy by yourself. You have to go with a third person. Here was this, this kid that didn't know what was going on. And I find out later that the administrator of the school had counseled the other parents to tell their kids to no longer hang out with Drew. My son was being left isolated in the worst time of his life. 
this Christian institution which was supposedly committed to understanding the scriptures and loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind had used the very words of God to harm my child. And my son went into self-hatred. He started to harm himself. And I remember a couple years later, he was just spiraling. He was just... It was just getting bad. He had this like simple insect bite that just got infected and went to the doctor for it. And then it just started getting worse. And it just grew out of control. And all of a sudden, we went to his doctor and said, you need to rush him to the emergency room right now because his, his blood is getting infected. And sure enough, he went into toxic shock. And the doctors put him on IVs. They put him in the best strongest antibiotics they could find. And every time it seemed like my son would get better, they'd release him after a week in the hospital. That same day, he would go back. Another week and round of, of, of IVs, he would get better. And then another time, toxic shock syndrome again. And the third time, he was hospitalized. And the doctors didn't know why my son wasn't getting any better. But I knew. I knew. Because my son was losing the will to live. You know, one of the elders of the church lives close to my house. And to get to my house, I always have to pass by a street. And I remember just like feeling angry at why all of this. And for some reason, I was just directing some of my anger to this one particular elder who I guess said some of the worst things in front of the church. And as I like continually passed his house, I remember the radio was on, on in my car and the news was, was, was saying that this, this small airplane just, just crashed into a, a house in the nearby city. And in my mind, I thought, God, I wish a plane would crash into his house. And I was stunned. I was stunned at that thought. I said, dear God, what have I become? God, have mercy on me. God, will you, will you save me? I don't like this version of myself that I am becoming. And as my, word, my mind went back to the words of Jesus, when Jesus said, love your neighbor. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I committed to myself that every time I went home and passed by the elder's house, I would say a prayer. And I remember that the elder was actually a co-pastor in my church. And because he left the church, he lost his income. And I knew on a personal level that he was already going through financial difficulty and that he might not be able to keep his home. And so I began to pray, God, would you help him to not lose his home? And I began to pray for his wife, for his children. And each time I began to pray that God would bless my enemy, what I began to discover that 
When you begin to pray for your enemy, God begins to change your heart. You could no longer hate your enemy. And God's words were beginning to form me. And so I began to write letters to my congregation or the people that left my church. And I wrote everyone that I could think of a letter. And I said, hey, I know that you've left the church, but I want you to know that I still want to be friends with you. I still want to be in a relationship with you. Would you be willing to meet? And for many people in the church that left, there was no response. And thankfully, there were a few that did and were able to reconnect. And to this day, some of those people remain friends. But there was this one, one story I'd like to share. It was with this couple, an Asian couple in my church, who we had been in a long-term Bible study with. My wife and I and our families would go on vacation and cruises with one another. They were one of our dearest friends. And after a couple of years, actually, they finally responded and said, Hey, Danny, you know, okay, we'll meet with you and we'll meet... We'll meet at this local Starbucks. And I remember getting there early to make sure I found a, a, an outside seat where we can talk. But I remember when they parked their car and I saw them walking towards me, I could already tell that there was something off. And once they sat down, they looked at me and they said, Danny, and automatically I knew there was something wrong because they used to always address me as Pastor Danny. But here they were saying, Danny... Last night, we almost emailed you back and said, hey, let's cancel this. And they said to me, you know what? We're not even sure why we're here and what you're asking for because we now see you on Facebook. You're traveling around the country, speaking at all these conferences, and we believe Satan is using you to destroy our nation. How could we possibly have a relationship with you? You talk about a a conversation that went south really fast. I mean, we pivoted. We started talking about how are your children, how are my children, and you could tell they were trying to get out of there as soon as possible. And as, I, as they were trying to say their goodbyes, I, I put my hands on the table and I said, wait, hold on. I have one last thing to say. I can understand if you no longer see me as a pastor and therefore no longer address me as pastor. I can understand if you no longer see me as a friend and therefore love me as your friend. But will you be willing to love me as your enemy? Because at least then... Love can be transacted. And they said, Danny, what do you mean? I said, I want to know that when we depart from here, that if you were sick or if I'm sick, that there is not this invisible thing that is keeping me from visiting you in the hospital or from you providing a meal for me. I need to know that as, as, as people, <coughs> as followers of Christ, we can still incarnate the love of Christ. Be because this, this, this matters to me. 
This matters that I can still love you and I can still show generosity and kindness to you, even though you see me as a heretic. This matters. Remember Richard Rohr saying love isn't about being right, but it's about being connected. That our goal as churches, as people of faith, is not to get our theology perfectly right. But the end goal is, can we love one another? Can we so love that the world will know that we are indeed disciples of Christ? Because if we keep putting labels on each other, that make it easier for us to bypass love than we have not loved. God calls us to love anybody and everybody. And please don't mistake this to mean that you ought to put yourself in harm's way because if you are in an abusive relationship, if someone is harming you, Please don't take that to mean that you have to stay in that situation. Take care of yourself. I'm not talking about those kind of situations at all. And so the last thing I want for you is to like mistake these words and for you to continue to be abused and receive like harm from anybody. But what I am saying is for people in your circles who you're fighting over with because of politics, because of of, of, of social media because of all sorts of things that is, is causing you to no longer want to have Thanksgiving or even coffee with them. We as a church seriously need to consider what it means to love one another. In the Old Testament, you find places of intersection where heaven and earth met. Moses going to Mount Sinai and seeing the burning bush, God was present in that place. It was in the holy holies where heaven and earth intersected. It was where Jacob wrestled with God and saw this ladder to heaven, where earth intersected. It was in the person of Jesus where heaven and earth intersected perfectly in the life of Christ and manifested so powerfully on the cross. But instead of a specific location, that location has now spread. Instead of one point, it is many. It is the church. It is the people of Christ where heaven and earth should intersect. And how is that manifested? It is manifested by divine love, by divine grace, by forgiveness. It is manifested when we are able to see the divine and the other person. As the Jewish proverb says, there is an angel before every person declaring, behold the image of God. Before every person an angel is declaring, behold, the image of God. If that's the first thing we can see whenever we encounter another precious life, then we can love. You know, after my church went through a split in 2014, the church we were... Uh, 
leasing from another Baptist church, we were leasing their their multi-purpose center, and they said, if you keep Danny as your pastor, you have to leave the premise. And so here we were, all the elders of the church left, our administrator left, the Sunday school leaders left, much of the worship team, um, and now we were without a, a property. We were we were just a bad place. And then we get a letter from the Southern Baptist Convention saying, hey, you need to come to Nashville because we, you need to address the 83 executive directors and answer some questions. And so in 2014, in the summer, I, I flew over there and for two days, I met with the executive committee and they began to ask me questions about my theology which I did the best I could to answer. I was asked if I had officiated the same-sex wedding, and I said yes. I was told that I was leading my church astray, that I was being influenced by liberal theology and by Hollywood, and that I was leading my church towards immor immorality. And in my defense, I said the greatest commandment that God gives us is to love our neighbor. If that is the greatest commandment, then the most immoral thing we can do is to not love. And therefore, it is the church that has committed the greatest sin. We have not loved our neighbors well. We have not loved the LGBTQ community. And if anyone here identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, gender non-conforming, trans, involved in that community, I want to say to you that I am so sorry for being part of the culture and part of the system that has perpetuated this violence and this theology of harm against you. That it's the church that needs to repent. You don't need to repent of your identity. There is nothing wrong with you. We are the ones that have sinned. And that's what I told these executive directors. And I said to them on the last day, in a few hours, you will take a vote and you will most likely dismiss our church from the denomination. But I want you to know that I, my church didn't fly me all the way from, from Los Angeles to Nashville to think that I would be able to change anyone's mind. My church sent me here to give you this message. And the message is this. That in a few hours, you will most likely dismiss our church. But we want you to know that in the eyes of God, the vote won't matter. Because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church. And because of that, even though you will dismiss us, we will always love you as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will always affirm our relationship with you. That even though we might voice places of disagreement, we will always respect you. Because we belong to the same family. And I pray that as 
people of God who are trying to pursue Jesus. That we will see the relentless love of Jesus. That we will pursue love. That we will begin to think about all relationships and all the negative labels we might put up on anybody. And that we would enter into the prayer of Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May our lives be the place where heaven and earth intersects. May the love of Jesus be present in us that the world will know that we are his disciples. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the love you have manifested on the cross. We thank you that you don't give up on us. And in turn, you ask us not to give up on anyone. And I don't know how that love might look. And for some people, it's hard and it'll take time. And that's okay. But God, would you begin this process of healing in our own hearts where we begin to pray. Where we begin to take baby steps and learn what it means to pray for our enemies. And yes, even from a distance. But God, whatever that love might look like for some of us, it might mean a phone call this afternoon. It might mean asking for forgiveness. But God, would you give us grace? Give us wisdom. Grant us courage for your namesake. Amen.